Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Joining me for The Bigger Picture today, Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Gratcher Tendency blog. And Mike, we are going to start, as we have discussed on so many occasions before, the Northern Ireland Protocol. But at least at least there's something new to say now. So tell us, if you can, in terms that a layman can understand, what on earth has been going on? Well, we've had one of those weeks where it feels like we've regressed to... 2019 again or even 2018 at a summit between the uh between a uk a british prime minister and, and the president of the european commission albeit very different protagonists mm. we're probably used to jean-claude juncker and theresa may or boris johnson and uh, but now it's ursula von der Leyen and uh, rishi sunak uh, suffices that there's only been one change in the president of the commission since then, and there's been four changes of prime minister <laughs> since Theresa May tried to strike her deal. But the difference was, I think, that unlike those previous attempts, with the possible exception of Boris Johnson in 2019, there wasn't a great sense of 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 triumph around those occasions. And actually, this week, I have to say, this is, this development is is good news for Rishi Sunak and. The simple reason is that there is widespread recognition from all sides that the Prime Minister has managed to achieve a changes to the Northern Ireland Protocol that was agreed by Boris Johnson in 2019 that are beneficial to all sides. At the very least, I think we have to acknowledge that the protocol is an integral component of our withdrawal agreement from the EU, it governs the relationship mm-hmm. around the very tricky question around Northern Ireland and how the interactions between the components of the uh, EU single market for goods are still applied to that part of the UK because of the Good Friday Agreement. So what we, we you'll, we'll be familiar with the, the long and tortured history of this. Essentially, Boris Johnson negotiated a essentially a solution that put a trade border down the middle of the Irish Sea but maintained mm. the national border on the island of Ireland. The idea being that no one wanted to see goods being checked at the border between North and South, what's commonly referred to as the hard border at that time. He did this solution. He imposed this solution as part of his bounce to try and get Brexit done. It was a flawed mechanism for a number of reasons, not least of all for that it didn't command the support of the unionists in Northern Ireland, the Democratic Unionist Party. In the end, Johnson was widely seen to have thrown them under the bus. And the reason is that the for a, a few reasons, particularly practically, a lot of goods couldn't move into Northern Ireland without checks. They had for example, there was a ban on, say, sausages going in there, but also certain essential medicines as well. 
it was seen that the protocol imposed a strong degree of burden on the movement of goods and thereby also affecting the UK's uh, relationship with Northern Ireland and the, the, the constitutional relationship as well. And of course, the so-called democratic deficit that whilst the Northern Ireland Assembly was given a majority vote on whether or not to disapply the protocol, the Assembly has to be constituted and sitting, which it is not at the moment. And there's been uh, partly the DUP's kind of failure on has been coupled with their own position in the polls in Northern Ireland falling, Sinn Féin gaining the most first mm. preference votes and emerging as the largest party for the first time. If the Assembly were to be constituted now and the executive, there would be a Sinn Féin first minister for the first time, although it's technically um, a joint head of government it still means that Sinn Féin would be seen as the senior partner in that coalition, rightly or wrongly, even if they're the, 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 the two largest unionist national parties are the same. So it was against this backdrop that Rishi Sunak decided to apply his brain to coming up with a revised solution. And going into this, it has to be said, there was a very low set of expectations for what he could deliver, but he seems to have surpassed those, Simon. Mm-hmm. The issue then becomes that he, meaning that Rishi Sunak, had to try and sell this compromise. So he he called Ursula von der Leyen over to Windsor specifically for last minute talks on the agreement. On Monday, they were able to set out and stand together and probably have the warmest interaction between of any UK. Prime Minister and European Union official that I've seen in a very long time. And that even mm-hmm. itself is a testament to how Rishi Sunak has really ratcheted down the tension with the EU. And he's got compromises that I think they've suggested, but he's been able to sell it in such a way that I think a lot of people realise that this is a good deal for Britain, it's a good deal for the EU, it's a good deal for Northern Ireland. It, it still means, though, that um, goods going to Northern Ireland are treated differently and that Northern Ireland is is treated differently than the rest of the the UK. What what response have we had from the DUP? Well, I think the fact that we haven't had a straight refusal from the DUP is a good thing. And one of the big wins that Rishi Sunak secured was a proposal previously put forward by the EU, which is the so-called red lanes and green lanes for goods. Now, this is for goods from the UK that are going just to Northern Ireland that basically he's managed to negotiate a path that the EU previously proposed whereby the majority of checks on these would be lifted. So it makes it easier for goods to go into North Ireland. We talk about the differential treatment for North Ireland. And many people might wonder why North Ireland is treated as a special case. The simple fact is that when the Good Friday Agreement was reached, the application of EU law through the Good Friday Agreement and membership of the single market particularly on things like goods, was an essential component of making that settlement work. When the, uh, the we decided the UK government decided to take the the country as a whole, including Northern Ireland, out of the EU, it jeopardised that settlement as well. Mm-hmm. It jeopardised, and obviously this we are on the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement as well, which is the momentous occasion. And you know, the, the, although there have been ructions 
along the way, it's the peaceable settlement has largely held, but we can't pretend that Brexit wasn't a massive threat to that in its own mm-hmm. way. But also we have to acknowledge that the DUP don't haven't really been able to square their own demands on sovereignty and place in the union with the fact they don't want to see a hard border. And uh, although we could say that mm-hmm. they are they there's a reason that, for example, Arlene Foster has is no longer the party's leader. She was defenestrated during that time. And the DUP also imposed certain ridiculous amounts like they wanted to leave the EU, but also didn't want a hard border. Well, anyone who's any of a passing knowledge of this can tell you that it's it's nearly impossible to achieve that. The best you can do is try and minimise the barriers as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But that does mean that certain applications of EU law have to be considered for Northern Ireland, which isn't something the DUP like. But the fact they haven't rejected this settlement under Geoffrey Donaldson's leadership, I think, shows that the DUP is seriously considering what's in front of them. And even then, Rishi Sunak has signalled that, you know, unlike Boris Johnson, he will give the DUP time to look this over. But if they don't get behind it, he'll still press ahead with it anyway. OK, Mike, a good moment for us just to take a quick break and then we'll change topic. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rhodes. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian. Mike, um, let's change topic. We're going to uh, delve into the um, mass of uh, WhatsApp messages um, <laughs> sent by Matt Hancock. I mean, this is quite an extraordinary story so where do we where do we begin here i should declare that somehow the timing of this is a bit ironic because last week i was given a belated birthday present of matt hancock's uh, <laughs> covid diaries uh, so i've had him and isabel oakshot kind of at the back of my mind since receiving that mm. book and if you've seen the cover of it, it has it has matt hancock looking slightly mournfully off into the distance as only he can but i think it's probably this this whole episode let's just agree has put the has put matt hancock's political reputation firmly in the ground once and for all if there was any doubt that the man is a class a um idiot i think this is probably it and i think his constituents will probably quite be quite relieved that he is choosing to shuffle off into uh out of parliament at the next election although for many people, I suspect that couldn't come close enough. So he, this, this, he has somehow managed to fall out with the the journalist who ghost wrote his memoir that he has uh, been. He was on "I'm a Celebrity" to promote over Christmas. So, for those people who don't know who Isabella Oakshaw is, she is she's been a political journalist for quite a while. She's certainly been around as long as I've been around in politics. To say that she has form on. Of, of of doing some ethically questionable things with her sources would be an understatement. Just ask Vicky Price, the wife of the former cabinet minister, Chris Hewn, who Isabel Oakshot uh, betrayed as the source of a story and that uh, after a legal injunction and that 
led to Miss Price being uh, subject to legal sanctions herself. But the, the relationship with Matt Hancock is quite an interesting. One. So she she partnered with Mr. Hancock to write the book. It's not unusual for politicians to to get people to ghostwrite their memoirs or interesting sides of it. And as part of this, Mr. Hancock gave um, Isabel Oakeshaw access to around 100,000 WhatsApp messages, millions of words that were sent during the pandemic. And of course, you could imagine Matt Hancock at this time is health secretary, he's a senior member of the government, but he's been in and out of the cabinet He's a former chief of staff to George Osborne, so he's very well connected. So these these messages cover not just the senior figures in time, but also his former boss, George Osborne. To and the books, the pandemic does were written as part of an effort by Mr. Hancock to try and rehabilitate his image. Isabel Oakshot just a few months ago was helping promote the book, but she claimed she wasn't paid by Mr. Hancock. So instead. She's taken these WhatsApp messages to the Daily Telegraph and handed them over. Now, mm-hmm. Mr. Hagot claims this breach is a non-disclosure agreement, but she claims they are in the public interest. Now, I don't have a great deal of sympathy with either of them. I won't hide the fact I am not a great fan of either Isabel Oakeshott or Matt Hancock. I also find it ironic that Isabel Oakeshott is paid by the outlet talk tv to be one of their pundits and she didn't give them the exclusive she said she went to the telegraph so i can imagine a lot of people at talk tv are probably questioning whether or not she's actually worth the value mm. for money that they have there there are there are a lot of moving parts of this story but suffice to say it, it makes for very very interesting reading i wouldn't i don't buy isabel oakshot's claims that this is about public interest journalism don't forget that one of her most infamous stories was when she co-wrote a biography of David Cameron, uh, which included the infamous and unsubstantiated pig story. Oh yes, which yes. is but she's she's also had a habit of she, she worked previously with Aaron Banks, who was the uh, the Brexit campaigner at that time. When she was writing his book, she uh, later uh, published a series of emails that he gave to her as part of that arguing that was in the public Senate. And of course there's the incident with um there's the incident with uh Vicky Price that I've mentioned as well. Mm. So she is she is in the words of one of her colleagues, uh Julia Hartley Brewer, a Marmite journalist. But the personality So, so obviously pretty- you don't like I, either of them, but perhaps we ought to look at the me- <laughs> the messages are now out there and they do seem pretty shocking um, they do and I, I i i mean i mean look I, either way i would say that having these in the public domain it's sharing a light on i must begrudgingly say that isabel Oshaw has probably done us a bit of a service to show, to highlight just about just how incompetent the johnson government was at the time and that there is a, a, a wonderful extract where you see patrick valance the scientific advisor uh, messaging about a particular statistic and Boris Johnson just replies with the word, eh? Which just to me is probably the most Boris Johnson-esque thing that could happen. But it, it, it should, we, sh- we, sh- we shouldn't forget though that the government's handling of this at the time, we could st- we could now be finding out for, for once and for all, and I think there's, there's, been, there's been another revelation this week not connected to this, which I think, for example, the FBI accepting that COVID came out of most likely came out of a Chinese laboratory, for example, Chinese lab. 
which shows that we're still learning a lot about this and, and it puts pressure on the public inquiry to, to get underway. And I think in this sense, there might be beneficial outcomes. Yeah, because many other, or, or quite a few other countries have already finished their public inquiry. Ours is going exactly. to go on for, what, a complete decade. It, it it doesn't necessarily seem to be totally comprehensive anyway. So no. this is this is all we've got to go on for a long, long time. I think this will help push things along. It shows that the material is there to make some quite stark judgments. And I would say that this isn't like the Chilcot report into the Iraq war, which had needed to take its time to come out. I think, you know, if that report had been rushed out, then I think many people would have been worried about it at the time. Mm -hmm. In this case, this needs to be, the inquiry needs to be underway. Kirstein has made it very clear he supports that too. But there also needs to be, there is also a place for the fourth estate to do its job properly as well. And the sense is, well, Oakshot has done us all a service there as well. It, it, sometimes you don't have to like the messenger to to agree that the message that they delivered that we were at the time apparently mm. governed by a bunch of incompetent idiots is was is one worth hearing. And oddly enough, that, that sort of suits the question I was going to ask. Before we move on from this, um, we've been talking many times about how uh, public trust in our politicians has been undermined at so many turns. Presumably this will do nothing to enhance the reputation of those who actually govern us? I don't think so. And look, we mustn't um, let the current government off the hook. Don't forget Rishi Sunak was a senior member of that government. He did argue against lockdown measures at the mm. time. And I think it should be it should be underlined the fact that Ms. Oakshot's agenda in this and that of the Daily Telegraph is they are vociferously against those lockdown policies. But the fact that they're pursuing an agenda doesn't mean that, you know, they shouldn't be looking into this. The fact is that I think at the time, look, maybe people would argue there was a lack of critical thinking about lockdown policies. I'd include myself in that at the time. I think we were mostly, a lot, most of us were inclined to go along with it. But we're still mm. living with the implications of the pandemic yes. in a variety of ways of life. And we probably will be for the rest of this decade, if not longer. And I think it's worth asking tough questions about it. And although... Although I wouldn't have wanted to have been a cabinet minister, to have been a chief scientific advisor, to have been Chris Whitty in those situations, to have to make those calls, we have to understand how the most, uh, the biggest constraint on our liberties since the, second, the end of the Second World War came about. And if there wasn't the justification for it at the time, it was done purely on the basis of ego or Matt Hancock, said, for example, messaging George Oswald that he wanted to goose his um his testing numbers which by the way you read those messages they are worth seeing because you can tell who used to be whose boss in that conversation it's not it's not matt hancock it's definitely yes, george yes. osborne <laughs> but we need we need answers simon and at the end of the day i think isabel Oakshot has begrudgingly i will say this she has done us a favor yeah well we probably only have time for, for one more um topic mike can we can we look at the snp um leadership race let's look at um politicians who aren't yes. necessarily um uh, governing us at the moment yes uh, so and I both in england so we are in the middle of it the first democratically contested smp leadership election in nearly two decades so it's a very exciting time for followers of scottish politics which i have to declare myself i actually hmm. have always um we i've always loved scottish politics and I've, i think the presence of salmon and sturgeon the presence of Salmond and Sturgeon has mm. made it one of the most dynamic and interesting fields to be, to work in. 
mm. to cover it. And uh, unashamedly, now I'll admit that I've had having been impressed at Nicola Sturgeon at times about you know her performance and her abilities as a politician. The outcomes you can question, but the the leadership construct place inevitably has been dogged by difficulties because the SNP, like a lot of parties, is having to deal with the the, the passing of, a, of an era. The Salmon Sturgeon axis is finally coming to an end. Nicola Sturgeon has, has has run Scotland in a way that is more akin to that of a national prime minister than the leader of, of effectively a very strong regional government. She is, you know, Channel 4's doing a debate on Scotland's next leader. So we have three candidates to replace them. We have Hamza Youssef, the health secretary. We have Kate Forbes, the finance secretary, who's had considerable difficulties around her socially conservative opinions and we have ash reagan so it's not a it's not a broad field i think from diversity the fact it's not going to be a white man is is a good thing it's also skipping a generation these are all people who are under 50 in uh in ash reagan in ash, in, in, sorry in kate forbes's case she's actually younger than i am which is astonishing given she's effectively uh she's only been in the, in the scottish government a few years and she's already ready to be its its leader and the leader of the smp but they, they are facing difficult questions. And the, the most notable things have been around not just the position on independence, um, how to achieve that, but also things like the controversial gender recognition bill that's been before the Scottish Parliament. I do feel I feel deeply for people on both sides of this debate, you know, whether it be women's rights activists or trans rights activists, that this has become a bit of a political football. But the simple fact is that this piece of legislation has provoked deep questions about not just how far devolved governments can go, but also what is the role of the government in overseeing people's lives, but also how young should people be required to be to be allowed to make these decisions that can have potentially, or do have potentially life-altering implications. And I think that for me, Ash Reagan and, and Kate Forbes are quite right to look again at the legislation. And one of the more interesting things is that whilst Hamza Hamza Youssef has lent into being the the more uh, socially liberal candidate, essentially the heir to Sturgeon. Even he has had question marks over his credentials because of a story told by Alex Neal on the former ministers that Mr. Uh, Youssef, when a minister under Alex Salmon, wanted to skip a vote on leg- on legalising gay marriage in Scotland in 2014 because he believed it was allegedly he believed it was incompatible with his uh, religious beliefs so no matter who who it is to replace Nicholas, i think yeah. they are gonna they're not they're gonna struggle to be as socially liberal as she was but also i think it will finally give us a good sense of where the smp is as a party have they fully moved on for the tar tories are you know is there a strong lgbtqia association in there that we often think about it and how loyal are these newer central belt voters that they took away from Labour? Do they share the more traditional social conservatism that we used to think of, of as being typical of the Scottish working class? Or is Scotland, as has often been assumed, but never entirely proven, more progressive than the UK? Mm. No matter who gets that job, these are going to be some very interesting views about the barometer of the biggest political party in Scotland and the possible direction of that nation under their leadership. And how long is the is the process presumably nothing like as interminable as the conservative party no so thank thankfully the process should be done by the end of march we will know in just about four weeks time who the new leader of the smp will be 
at the moment, I'm still putting my money on Hamza Youssef. Kate Forbes was the early favourite, but I think she's probably too socially conservative. But mm. interestingly, someone did point out that she does have the largest constituency majority in the Scottish Parliament of any individual member of, of the Scottish Parliament. So there is a question also of, is the SNP where Scotland is on these issues as well? So it, again, very interesting things to come, Simon. And I think for the SNP themselves, big big questions to be answered so i'm going to i'm going to look forward to this contest with interest actually mike thank you very much indeed i've been in conversation with mike indian um, political commentator author of the groucho tendency blog and mike will be back with me i hope in a fortnight's time the bigger picture going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day 